I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, listeners of the History of England. My name is Zach, and today I will be talking to you about the 1314 Battle of Bannockburn. At least, that's what David asked me to do. However, because of my inherent need to always set the scene, I thought I'd give you some background info too. Inevitably, the subject of Braveheart will come up, and I'll talk for a small bit at the end about my future plans regarding podcasting. I would like to get straight into this, so please be gentle, and I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I have enjoyed creating it. Without further ado then, on to late 13th century England. Background. When King Alexander II died in 1286, his four-year-old daughter Margaret was left as the sole heir to the throne of Scotland. Despite being merely four years old, marriage arrangements were made with the son of King Edward I to the then five-year-old Edward II. But in 1290, on her way to the Orkney Islands, Margaret died. This was a disaster for Scotland, as now the sheer number of claimants to the throne would all but guarantee civil war. The two leading competitors for the Scottish crown were Robert the Bruce, 5th Lord of Annandale, grandfather of the future King Robert the Bruce, and John Balliol, Lord of Galloway. However, there were 13 claimants in total, so in their efforts to preserve peace within Scotland, the Guardians of Scotland invited the aforementioned King Edward I to arbitrate. They did this because of Edward's reputation as a great negotiator, which had come out of Edward's diplomatic efforts including arbitrating the peace treaty between France and Aragon, which had garnered him great international acclaim. Of course, it's not like the Guardians knew that this was the same Edward who would become known as the Hammer of the Scots. They were simply trying to sort out their own dynastic struggles, and hoped that the influence of the powerful King Edward would help solidify the position of whoever emerged as the clear King of Scotland. But as we now know, Edward had other ideas. So Edward agreed to meet the Guardians at Norham in 1291, just on the border of Scotland and England. But before the process got underway, Edward insisted that he be recognised as Lord Paramount of Scotland. And during the meeting, Edward had his army standing by, thus forcing the Scots to agree. He gave the claimants three weeks to agree to his terms. With no king, no Scots army ready, and King Edward's army at hand, the Scots had no choice. The claimants to the crown acknowledged Edward as their Lord Paramount and accepted his arbitration. Their decision was also influenced in part by the fact that most of the claimants had large estates in England 
and would have surely lost them if they had defied the English king. In what became known as the Great Cause, Edward reviewed cases put forward by the claimants from May to August 1291 at Berwick, until only a few claimants, including John Balliol and Robert the Bruce, still just the future king Robert the Bruce's grandfather, remained. However, it was John Balliol who was elected king of the Scots on November 17, 1292, and as he moved to pay homage to King Edward at Newcastle on December 26th, it became clear that Edward regarded Scotland not as an equal, but as a vassal. This was confirmed when in 1294 he summoned Balliol before him and told him that he had until September 1st of that year to provide troops and support for England's coming war with France. However, instead of supplying troops to fight in France, Balliol sent a diplomacy mission. His aim was to re-establish the old alliance between Scotland and France. Such a move would surely guarantee war with England, but Balliol and his Scottish subjects could take no more of Edward's rule. They chafed under his constant demands, and they resented his flagrant disregard of Scottish sovereignty. In 1296, Scottish moves across the border gave Edward the excuse he needed to invade. Thus, what we now know as the First Scottish War of Independence had begun. Outbreak of Hostilities Edward's initial invasion of Scotland was a fantastic success. He sacked Berwick with shocking brutality and forced many Scottish nobles to capitulate. Years of continental war had ensured that Edward's army was both the best trained and best equipped in Europe. As a fighting force it had no equal, and thus it bulldozed the brave but hopelessly outmatched Scottish rebels. The Scots were utterly routed at the Battle of Dunbar in March 1296. John Balliol abdicated and was locked up in the tower, and the Scottish Stone of Destiny was taken to Westminster, which, on a small side note, is believed to have its origins in Ireland at around 500 AD, because who says I can't talk up my own country? Also, on a completely unrelated side note, for those of you who may not have had the pleasure of studying that period in history, Scotland gets its name from the Scotty, an Irish tribe who invaded and settled in northern Britain during and after the final days of Roman occupation. So Irish side notes aside, where was I? Ah yes, so Edward then convened a parliament at Berwick, where the Scottish nobles paid homage to him as King of England. It seemed now that Scotland had been all but conquered. It is here that the most famous of rebels begin to emerge, William Wallace. This podcast does not intend to decipher the myths or truths behind the man, but his impact even in a closed sense is undeniable. With the reinvigorated morale under Wallace and his contemporary rebel leader Andrew de Murray, the rebels began revolting across Scotland. In response, Edward sent an army north to crush the Scots, as he had done so many times before. What follows is the battle that made Wallace's name, Stirling Bridge. The battle was the first major crucial victory for the Scots, giving credibility to their cause and enraging Edward to no end. As far as Edward and most of England were concerned though, Wallace had broken the code of chivalry by attacking the English in a dishonourable way. He had not allowed the English army to line up in formation, instead attacking them as they attempted to pour through the bottleneck across the bridge. With only one way through, and marshes on both sides of the bridge, the smaller Scottish army used the land to their advantage, almost like Thermopylae in some respects. Wallace had reached the pinnacle of his status. 
being named sole guardian of Scotland in the following weeks. Wallace now turned his attention towards England itself, moving to avenge now on England what damage Edward had wrought on Scotland in the war's early years. He burned and pillaged many English towns, massacring numerous civilians and killing any English men he came across. The less known facts of Wallace's life was that he was not merely a patriot, military genius or man of great ability, but he was also a man of his day, which meant that the customary traditions of medieval war were employed by him as much as the English. Wallace hated the English as much as the English hated him. It is not surprising that both sides acted in the way that they did. What was that I said about not getting bogged down about Wallace's character? Oops. But where does Braveheart come into all of this? <sighs> I don't want to dwell too long on this subject, simply because I really do want to focus on the historical events as they actually chronologically happened, but at the same time I just can't resist talking at least a small bit about the film. The depictions of the battles are undeniably epic, that goes without saying, but its depiction of Robert the Bruce as a turncoat in the Battle of Falkirk was absolutely false. That is a battle which we will look at a bit later. Additionally, Braveheart was in fact the name given to Robert the Bruce, not William Wallace. I have always found it interesting that the film chose to document Wallace's life, a man about whom we know very little. For example, we don't even know what he looked like, instead of documenting Robert the Bruce's life. Robert's experiences and battles were, in my opinion at least, vastly more important than Wallace's in terms of Scottish independence. I hope I haven't ruined the film for you too much, but on a final note, you know that last bit of the film where Robert the Bruce leads his men into battle just as the credits are about to roll? Well, that battle is probably the most important battle in Scotland history. Sorry about that, Mel. Back to reality, though and Edward was not interested in Wallace's potential movie deals, he endeavoured to lead the English army himself and destroy Wallace once and for all. Because of this, Stirling Bridge was a victory that Wallace would not be able to savour for long, as it was overshadowed by his defeat under Edward's personally-led army in 1298 at the Battle of Falkirk. The Scottish spear units had formed into the new Skiltrum formations, effectively large circles of spearmen, and this had rendered them virtually impregnable against cavalry, as the English tried and failed many times to break their formations, but they are immensely vulnerable to missile attack, which the longbows provided with devastating efficiency. The Scots' fate was sealed on the battlefield by the emergence of the English longbow as an effective weapon, and by the desertion of the Scottish nobles, who were in effect Wallace's only cavalry. Robert the Bruce was not among these nobles, though. He was not even present on the battlefield, the defeat of the Scots army at Falkirk seemed to undo the work Wallace had done, both in Scotland and abroad, in solidifying his power and Scotland's status as a separate kingdom. Wallace fled into hiding, and the tide turned in favour of Edward once more. Wallace was succeeded as guardian by the joint rule of John Common and Robert the Bruce. Yes, that Robert the Bruce. But Scotland was defeated again in subsequent campaigns in 1300 and 1301 leading to a truce in 1302. In 1303 to 1304, Stirling Castle, the last Scottish stronghold, was captured by England. Then, in 1305, Wallace's infamous execution was carried out as he was hung, drawn and quartered. It is unlikely that he shouted, FREEDOM! just before his death, though, considering that he would probably have been unconscious by the time he was drawn and quartered. Okay, so I'll try and stop ruining the movie for you now. So, with Scottish resistance all but defeated, and their great leader killed, 
It seemed as though Scotland would lay down for Edward, and it would finally accept its status as a vassal. But, infuriatingly for Edward, this would not be the case. For while he would live to see Wallace's execution, which he watched with relish, he would not live to see the end of the war. Edward knew very well that his son, Edward II, shared none of the qualities necessary for a king during wartime. Edward would have looked at his son and worried for England's future. As we now know, his fears concerning Edward II were well founded. In February of 1306, the two guardians of Scotland, Robert the Bruce and John Common, clashed at Dumfries. Robert the Bruce and John Common rarely saw eye to eye on Anglo-Scottish issues, especially since Common favoured peace with England and believed that if submission for the moment meant peace, then that was the course Scotland should follow. It is important to stress that Common was not alone in this view. Many people believed that Scotland could simply wait, bide its time until England was preoccupied, and then make another bid for independence when they were better prepared. There was no shame in admitting defeat to the strongest state in medieval Europe, only to rise again in the future. But John Common was killed in the quarrel, and this left Robert as the sole guardian and de facto ruler of Scotland. Scotland's future would now follow Robert's views, that Scotland must resist at all costs, to the end if necessary. Besides, Robert would reason, England was at war with France, now is as good a time as any to not stop fighting. Robert then began to style himself in the same fashion as Wallace had done years before, and Scotland began to rally to his cause. However, Robert was defeated in the subsequent campaign he set in motion, and he fled as an outlaw from a Scotland thoroughly controlled by England. Then, the greatest enemy of Scotland, King Edward I, Longshanks, and the Hammer of the Scots, died in July 1307, and the landscape of Britain changed dramatically. Robert the Bruce returned to Scotland among jubilant crowds, who were encouraged with the news of Edward's death and clamouring for a new campaign. Robert would give them what they wanted. In this new campaign season, though, it was clear that the situation had changed. The Scottish army, who had once been a band of peasant farmers and unruly rebels, were now replaced by a professional, disciplined force. Years of war against the English had given them valuable experience, and had also opened Scottish eyes to their style of fighting, gradually moulding them into a formidable army, far more capable than they had been before. But it was not going to be easy. England still held practically every stronghold throughout Scotland, Robert would have to dislodge them before victory could be achieved, but Robert was determined. He embarked on a slow but successful guerrilla campaign, undermining the English position and gathering support for his cause. Over these few years until 1314, Robert had avoided a pitched battle, believing it was too great a risk should they lose, as they had at Falkirk. Even the most famous of victories, the Battle of Bannockburn, which was, by the way, supposed to be the main focus of this episode, oops, almost did not happen, because Robert believed the odds were too greatly stacked against his forces. But in one of those what-if moments, Robert did do battle, and Scottish historians and nationalists alike are surely very happy that he did. In many ways, the Scottish army's victory at Bannockburn under Robert was similar to Wallace's victory 18 years earlier. There was a larger English army, the Scots were expected to lose, and had you been a betting man at the time, it would have looked at though Scotland was down and out. But then, just like before, the Scots somehow won, the English were left shaking their heads, and the English king decided enough was enough and gave up on Scotland. Wait, what? Well, here's where some things are different. Because King Edward II was in so many ways not at all his father's son. 
His lack of political skill and weakness of constitution is legendary. But is this a fair judgement? We'll revisit this question a bit later on, but having just said that, I don't want to go too far into his character for two main reasons. First, because that would not be fair on David, who kindly let me cover Bannockburn, but had no idea what he was getting himself into, haha. <laughs> and I'm sure wants to cover a figure as controversial and as interesting as Edward II himself. Second, Edward is just too complex a figure to judge by a passing reference here, and his history demands adequate coverage on a podcast, because otherwise, well, it just would not be fair on him, even if you don't like him. However, I will say that had Edward I not died six years earlier, I'm sure he would not have reacted to the defeat as his son had. Additionally, it is interesting to note that Longshanks had the Scots effectively under control for the majority of his rule, Stirling Bridge being the obvious exception, and that once he died, the situation under Edward II largely fell apart. But I digress. Bannockburn was a victory that Scotland so badly needed. It is so important, in fact, that I will now proceed to examine it in detail, since, hey, that was what the whole point of this podcast was, and who am I to ramble on for 15 minutes beforehand? Okay, so the battle occurred around three miles down the road from Stirling Castle, the same castle English forces had seized around ten years earlier. The situation at Stirling Castle was interesting because, when in spring of 1314, Robert arrived to besiege it with an army, he could make no progress. So he made a deal with the castle's commander, Sir Philip Mowbray, that if the castle was not relieved by June 24th, he would surrender to Robert. There is a key reason that I can see which would warrant such a deal be struck. Although Robert was making no progress in the siege now, Mowbray believed that he would eventually, and thought that the best chance for his castle would be to force a battle between the English and Scottish forces. The best way to force a battle would be to pull an English army up from the south to reinforce the castle's position. But Mowbray may not have been confident that they would make it on time, so to ensure that the English army rushed to his rescue, he clearly defined how long he intended to hold out, hoping that English arms would win the day, but consoled himself that if they could not reach him on time, then at least Mowbray would not have to suffer a siege or any loss of men, as it was planned to be a peaceful transition. Whatever Mowbray's intentions, the English army raced north to meet Robert's force. During this time, Robert trained his army, moving them away from the immobile Skiltrum formation and instead instructed his men to fight on the move. Additionally, Robert settled on the area where he planned to fight. He chose an area three miles down the road, in what was once a hunting reserve, a place called New Park. New Park was where the Scottish camp was established, within the woods, as it commanded a key military position. To understand the battlefield, imagine that you stand in a wood where the Scottish camp is located, and then picture a horseshoe-shaped river which dominates the landscape in front of you. This is the Bannockburn, from where the battle gets its name. Then, visualise a road cutting straight across the horseshoe, horizontally. Then, imagine that, at the top part of this horseshoe, but on the other side of the horizontal cut, made by the Falkirk-Stirling Road lies a grassy, slightly marshy plain known as the Carse of Stirling. To your right, there is a bridge which goes over the Bannockburn, and, because you are so well prepared, you have dug ditches on both sides of the road, leading up to and away from the bridge, and filled them with spears, and you have done this on both sides of the river. Are you still with me? Because that last fact will become important later on. Okay, so a road is directly in front of you, Stirling Castle is three miles up the road to your left, and a bridge is a little bit down the road to your right. 
There are also marshes dotted around the landscape, meaning that there are very few places where infantry and, crucially for the Scottish victory, heavy cavalry can effectively manoeuvre. By June 22nd, 1314, Bruce was as ready as he would ever be with about 6,500 skilled troops as well as 500 cavalry under Sir Robert Keith to match a formidable English force numbering about 20,000 men. This English army included seasoned veterans of the Scottish campaigns such as the Earl of Pembroke, Henry de Beaumont and Robert Clifford. Robert had very nearly retreated from the battlefield the night before worrying that his men were outmatched by the English army and that too much was at stake to risk on a pitched battle which the English had always demonstrated their skills in. But Robert was persuaded to stay and fight by his own commanders including Thomas Randolph, 1st Earl of Moray, who would command the vanguard of the Scots army in the coming battle, as well as reports from his scouts that morale among the English force was low. On the night before battle, the English would surely have viewed the battlefield they had marched to with a certain sense of unease. The marshes would necessitate locating more reliable ground and sticking to it, so that the heavy cavalry could charge effectively. It was clear that the river, the Bannockburn, would have to be crossed, but just how reliable was the ground on the other side? The Falkirk Stirling Road itself would be sturdy, but you could only fit so many cavalry on that at one time. And what of the plains sloping down from the road and meeting the river, the Carse of Stirling? Also, what dastardly things had the Scots hidden in that forest? Of all of these questions, the English would not like any of the answers. On the morning of June 23rd, the English attack began. It started when Henry de Bohun, a nephew of the Earl of Hereford, one of the English commanders, charged to attack an unprotected Bruce. Believing he had Bruce at a disadvantage, as he was far out in front of his army and not wearing his armour, Henry charged recklessly forward, only to have his head split in half by Robert's axe. Devastated at his loss, the cavalry detachment under his command fled back across the bridge. Robert was chastised by his commanders for putting himself so blatantly in harm's way. Famously, though, Robert is said to have simply replied, I have broken my axe. Such a remark spirited his troops, and while Robert went to get himself a new axe, the Scots managed to beat back the advance of the Earl of Hereford and Gloucester, appointed to joint command by Edward after a quarrel about who would take the lead. This was a compromise that satisfied no one, by the way. The English cavalry were beaten back across the bridge to the right, thanks in part to those large spear pits I told you to remember earlier, which the English cavalry only discovered after impaling themselves on gruesomely. Because they were forced to such a small gap along the bridge, it meant that the Scots only had to fight some heavy cavalry at once. Back at St Ninian's Church, which is halfway along the road that is directly in front of you, so effectively in the middle of the horseshoe then, Thomas Randolph, the first Earl of Moray, was successfully repelling the advance of another English cavalry force under Robert Clifford and Henry de Beaumont, which had skirted the Scottish position to the east and rode towards Stirling. Bruce had spotted the manoeuvre and ordered Randolph's force to intercept, and the English were met with a line of spears. This was a sign of things to come for the English. Because they were unsupported by longbows and mounted on rough terrain, they could make no headway against the Scots spear formations, which were by now even more mobile and deadly than they had been at Falkirk. With night drawing near, Edward II made the greatest blunder of the year, and probably the biggest mistake of his entire reign, when he ordered his army to cross the Bannockburn a bit upstream, and to camp for the night on the course of Stirling. This meant that, in the mind map you should still have in your heads, Edward's entire force were camped at the top of the horseshoe, 
with nowhere to go but forward, since the river and marshes to their rear bottled them up. That morning, the English readied themselves for battle, and the Scots obliged. Ronald McNair Scott, in his book Robert the Bruce, King of Scots, recalls that the Scots army knelt in prayer in full view of the English army. Seeing this, Edward II was reported to have said, Ha! They kneel for mercy. Only for one of his aides to reply, Yea, sir, they kneel for mercy, but from God, not from you. These men will conquer or die. As the Scots then advanced, the English attempted in vain to form up in such a confined space. Amidst this atmosphere of disorder, the Earl of Gloucester charged with his cavalry and led the vanguard against the leading Scots spearmen, commanded by Edward Bruce. Gloucester was killed in the forest of Scottish spears, along with some of the other knights. The Scots then reached the English line, engaging them along the entire front. The English army, which was tightly packed and still unable to properly form into an effective defensive position, began to be slaughtered in droves. Desperately, in an effort to make use of his longbowmen, Edward allowed some to flank the left side of the Scots army. But the longbowmen would not turn the tide here as they had at Falkirk, and, seeing the threat posed by them, Bruce ordered one of his commanders, Sir Robert Keith, to pursue them with a small detachment of horsemen. With the archers routed, cries of Press on! Press on! began to emerge from the Scots army, as they sensed the English line was faltering. As the English dead mounted and more men began to waver, these cries turned to, On them! On them! They fail! Such cries alerted the Scottish camp followers, who, picking up weapons and banners, moved from out of the Scottish camp in the woods where they had been situated. Seeing these men emerge from the woods in front of them further up the hill would have seemed to the English like a second reserve force of Scots, and they lost all hope. With his army crumbling around him, Edward fled the battle before it was fully over, adding to the panic and ensuing chaos. Men who did not flee were trampled or drowned in the following rout. Robert the Bruce had clearly won the day, and it had been an utterly devastating defeat for England. As Edward II retreated to Dunbar Castle and then sailed south to England, he viewed his losses. Records vary from 4,000 to 11,000, and must have known that his barons were already developing plans to be rid of him. Soon, Edward would have not just his father's legacy to worry about, but his own safety within his own kingdom. He would never return to Scotland. Peace and Conclusion The victory spelt disaster for Edward, but solidified Robert's position as King of Scotland. In the years that followed, England's focus shifted to France and away from Scotland. King Robert of Scotland now opened a second front of the war in Ireland, which in itself is a period in history which I believe deserves its own podcast. Robert would also send dignitaries abroad to gain recognition of Scottish sovereignty, including the Pope, who in 1320 approved the Declaration of Arbroath, establishing Scotland as a sovereign, internationally recognised and separate political entity. Bannockburn was the last pitched battle of the War of Scottish Independence and completely turned Edward's focus away from the land in the north that his father had tried in vain to completely subdue and which he himself had just abandoned. One of Edward II's aides at this time, Robert Le Messager, was reportedly arrested for saying that it was no wonder the king couldn't win a battle, referring to Bannockburn, because he spent the time when he should have been hearing mass in idling, ditching, digging and other improper occupations. As Edward's unpopularity grew, 
he became a recluse. On the day Edward agreed to Parliament's decision to oppose him, the 20th of January 1327, a delegation sent to him at Kenilworth Castle revealed the reasons why his subjects had rejected his rule. The second reason, which began, he has not been willing to listen to good counsel, also included the interesting accusation that he has always given himself up to unseemly works and occupations. Edward was killed later that year, some say by his wife Isabel. In his place, the 17-year-old King Edward III was forced to sign a peace treaty on May 1st, 1328, when Robert invaded England. This treaty, known as the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, brought to an end the 32-year war between Scotland and England. The treaty gave England's official recognition to Scottish sovereignty and Robert's role as Scotland's monarch. In short, this was a landmark moment in Scotland's history, although incredibly, the Second War of Scottish Independence would break out just four years later in 1332. But that is a story for another day. I'm not entirely sure what to expect with people's reaction to this. I hope you didn't mind that I took David's place for a week, but this was very much a practice run for me. Before I go though, I'd like to say a few thank yous. First, without David's support, none of this would have been possible. Though I was starstruck at first, I was eventually able to regain my composure and talk to him as a relative equal with merely a lot to learn. Thankfully, he did not ignore me or belittle me with his vastly superior knowledge. Thanks, Dave. I really could not have done it without you. Second, I'd like to thank my sources, some of which are so helpful they deserve to be known. Anyone with even remote interest in Edward II should check out Catherine Warner's blog, as she has tons of info there all about him. You can find her at edwardthesecond.blogspot.com. Last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you, the listener, however you are feeling about me right now, because you have just listened to Zach Twomley's first ever podcast. That I hope it won't be my last should give you an indication as to where I'm going with this. Yes, if you just give me a small bit more of your time, I'd like to explain exactly what I plan on doing. The plan is this, to combine my two loves of history and politics into a podcast. So every week, I plan on releasing a podcast covering the background to, build up to, break out of, main points within, and consequences of, various conflicts in history. Is it a crazy idea? Most definitely. But right now, I'm looking at the new microphone I just bought. I'm looking at the word count of 5,216 words I just typed, and I'm thinking, that was fun. So, I hope you'll join me on my podcasting journey. Oh, I almost forgot the name of the podcast. It will be called When Diplomacy Fails. And hopefully, provided I don't get bogged down by technical difficulties or overloaded with work, you will be hearing my gorgeous voice again very soon. Thanks again, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.